Hello everyone, my name is Morten Zeyer and I'm today here with Tatiana Bailey uh, from the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, who is the director of the UCCS Economic Forum. But I would like to go to uh, Tatiana to introduce herself and the topic today, which is COVID-19 and income inequality. Thanks so much, Morten. Uh, yes, thanks for having me. I'm. Uh excited in a strange sort of way to talk about income inequality, which of course has been amplified uh, by COVID-19. Um, but really, it's, it's just put a spotlight on a problem that the United States has had for really decades and has only um, increased in the current situation, but even before the current situation. No, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Could you talk quickly about how society is affected by income inequality overall? Well, of course, the economy is made up of people and they determine both demand through their consumption and through supply in what they produce when they work. It's pretty simple. But income doesn't have to be equal between individuals or households necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a large chasm in income where some portion of the population makes, say, one one hundredth of what another portion makes, and if that lower socioeconomic group struggles to have basic needs met, um, and their consumption is also cur curtailed, all kinds of distortions can happen. Uh, I, I have a long list, but um, let's talk about a few of the, you know, the top ones. First of all, if people aren't making a lot, their incentive to work is less because their opportunity cost of working, such as through childcare costs, is really high. I have a PhD and five kids, and when they were really young, as I mentioned to you, I did a little consulting work from home, a little bit of teaching, but honestly, it wasn't really worth it to work after paying childcare. And I have a lot of education. Another thing is groups with less income and wealth, by definition, are gonna have less impact on decisions made at companies about compensation and benefits. They'll also have less influence in government policy decisions. So over time, this erodes their ability to pull themselves out of poverty. This impotence and decision-making spills over to big policy issues like how much to spend on public education in marginalized neighborhoods, in infrastructure. Think about, for instance, Flint, Michigan and the water uh, fiasco there. Um, and because of gerrymandering and other political distortions, poorer people who are disproportionately Black and Hispanic have relatively less power in terms of electing officials who may better represent their needs. So it's kind of this self-perpetuating negative cycle and part of the reason poverty in the US in my mind has become, you know, quote, generational. The income inequality is more prominent in, in the US than just about every other developed country. According to the census, about 12% of Americans were at or below the federal poverty level in 2018. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound so bad, right? 12% until you know that the federal poverty level uh, in that year was $20,212 for a family with two adults and one child. Even if we double that threshold to 200% of the poverty level or roughly uh, $40,000 uh, per year, 30% mm -hmm. of Americans uh, in 2018 were in that income bracket. That's a lot of people. And remember, 2018 was during good economic times when we were finally starting to see some marginal improvements uh, after the Great Recession for the uh, poorest workers. Now, what about the top 1% of workers um, or earners in the US? Well, they account for about 20% of the country's total annual income. 
while the lowest 25% of Americans account for only about 3.7% of total U.S. income. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's almost unfathomable. You can't really, really conceptualize it. In terms of wages, um, the Economic Policy Institute did a, a look at this and said that the average wage for each worker in the top 10% was about 100000 while the bottom 10% earned only about 21000 a year. I, and, you know, you live in the United States now, Martin. I, I don't know how anyone uh, lives on, you know, twenty or even $40,000 a year when, you, you know, when you're talking about a household of at least three people. Yeah. Now, hold on though. The top 1% in the United States make 142 times what the bottom 99% make because the average income of the top 1% is 22.5 million. Um, and the federal poverty level for an individual in 2018 for one person was $12,000 a year. So that kind of encapsulates the extremism of income inequality. Oh, wow. Yeah. So here's, and here's another one. So this is, I guess, the third major point. If individuals or households have low paying jobs or no jobs, that doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're, they aren't part of quote, what we call society. And most of society finds it egregious to not provide some level of health care especially in acute situations, right? Like mm -hmm. no one's going to say, uh, you know, somebody just had a heart attack, but they don't have health insurance. So let's, let's shut the doors of the hospitals, right? Same is true for hunger, particularly for children. It's, it's egregious to think about people going hungry, especially in a developed country that has so much wealth. So what do we do? We have these federal and state programs like Medicaid and food, stamp, food stamps to mitigate you know, the situations. Yeah. But here's, here's the part that gets me. These programs are extremely expensive to provide. And remember, we're providing them for a lot of people in the United States. Remember, 200% of the federal poverty level or below mm -hmm. is about 30% of the American population. In many states, decision makers acknowledge that the federal poverty level is too low, so they change the threshold for receiving benefits, for instance, to that 200% mark. Since about a third of the U.S. population was at or below the, uh, this income threshold, that's about 100 million Americans. So the outrageous expenditures make for big headlines, right, and lots mm -hmm. of skepticism. How can we spend so much on Medicaid? How can we spend so much on food stamps? People should just go to work. Well, as an economist, I feel like, honestly, it'd be cheaper to address the root causes of poverty and make systemic investments in eradicating poverty um, than it is to pay for all of these transfer payments to poorer households. Over time, if we really started to get to the root causes of poverty, we might even reduce the proportion of people who are poor in the US and the long run overall costs. So, you know, it's, it, we have to think of eradicating poverty as an investment as opposed to a handout. Oh, yeah. If I may uh, interrupt you here real quick, I'm just very curious. I mean, this is all, to use your word, egregious to hear this, quite, quite obviously. Um, how has COVID-19 affected income inequality in the U.S.? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to, to your first question mm -hmm. um, because it kind of leads into your okay. second question. So, you know, a fourth, I told you my list was long, okay, but I promise it's only five items <laughs> that I'm <laughs> focusing on. So a fourth, you know, um, 
sort of ramification, societal ramification of this income inequality is related to crime. It's, it's no secret in the U.S. That the, that the U.S. has the highest incarceration, incarceration rate of peer-developed countries. Um, you know, in 2018, the U.S. had 698 incarcerated people per 100,000 population, according to the, uh, this think tank called the Prison Policy uh, Initiative. Mm -hmm. That includes jails, prisons, juvenile, residential facilities, and so forth. By contrast, fear countries like yours um, are somewhere in, in the uh, range of uh, 78 incarcerated people per 100,000, and uh, say 139, uh, which is uh, the UK. So, you know, and remember, U.S., I said, was almost 700. And depending on the state, it costs somewhere between 31000 and up to $60,000 per person who is incarcerated. Uh, it adds up to about $200 billion per year in tax, in, you know, that taxpayers pay, uh, like they pay for other transfer payments. So even if I were a non-feeling, you know, Star Trek Vulcan, which honestly mm -hmm. most economists are, <laughs> I would just say this isn't logical. Fix income inequality and spend less. And of course, you know, what I'm talking about here is, you know, these high incarceration rates are, of course, concentrated in lower income neighborhoods, which are disproportionately, um, you know, racial ethnic minorities. So this is now spilling over to some of the social unrest. And, you know, in the article that, uh, uh, the Solvecast founder, uh, you know, read and first contacted me about that's, I said, you know, I, I really wasn't surprised that the social unrest happened on the heels of the COVID outbreak. It's yeah. all correlated. And then the last thing I just wanted to mention was another incredibly unfortunate outcome that emanates from, from this income inequality, um, you know, also spills over to women. Uh, who have been disproportionately uh, impacted by COVID-19 because they tend to um, disproportionately work in hospitality-related um, industries. Uh, but also, remember, they only make about 80 cents on the dollar in, in, in the U.S. Yeah. So, you know, it's, as I said, it's taken a bad situation and just made it worse. Um, and going back to your other question about uh, how COVID-19 has impacted income inequality across the U.S., exactly. what communities mm -hmm. are hit the most? Well, Black Americans have by far the highest um, overall COVID-19 mortality rate in, in the U.S. as of right now. They are at 80.4 per 100,000 uh, in, in the U.S., which is twice the rate of white Americans. Uh, in terms of mortality, uh, who are at 35.9 deaths per 100,000. So double the rate for Black Americans. In 2020, more Black Americans are going to die uh, of COVID-19 than they, than they would from diabetes, strokes, accidents, or pneumonia. So it's very quickly become a, a prominent killer in the Black community. Um, COVID-19 is the third largest uh, leading cause of death for Black Americans right now. Now, how does in, you know, income inequality, while we know that racial ethnic minority groups have uh, you know, higher poverty rates, but this, is, this was an interesting analysis. I, I found that the state of New York, which actually has the highest income inequality of all states 
mm-hmm. um, their mortality rate was also the highest. So as someone who also has a public health background, you know, when I first heard about the outbreak in, in New York City in particular, I thought, oh, well, it's because it's densely populated and you have people riding the metro or, you know, and, and so forth. And that's true, but all over the state, uh, the the mortality rate and, and the prevalence of the disease was much higher. And it's also the most unequal state in, in terms of uh, income. Their rate, uh, their mortality rate was, or stands at 51.8 per 100,000. That's 125 times the mortality rate in Utah, which is the state with the lowest income inequality. They only have 0.41 deaths per 100,000 of COVID-19. That is quite something. Okay, that's a lot of information and a lot of data. Um, Mm -hmm. I I understand that you probably have a a summary there, but I would like to understand also what can we as individuals or companies or the government concretely do to Mm -hmm. um, revise this or reverse it even, uh, make sure that income inequality becomes uh, smaller? Well, um, you know, Kind of tied to your to your previous question or leading into uh, your question, you know, recessions always hit lower income people harder, right? Because they don't have the financial cushion and they don't usually have any uh, assets. Um, but I really think COVID nineteen is going to go down in the history books for increasing income inequality for two main reasons. One is their baseline was already low, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot of poor people in the U.S. pre COVID nineteen. Two, unlike the financial crisis, which went from the top, say the banks, right, the financial institutions, down to the white collar and then trickled down to, you know, um, other income groups, this one started at the bottom. The lowest wage workers, um, typically in hospitality, they were hit first and hardest. And we know that a lot of those businesses have permanently shuttered. So when you, when you look at, you know, what kind of steps can we take? Well, a lot of these individuals also don't have paid sick leave, these low-income workers. That, that's something we, we just need to change. Uh, and, and honestly, it's, it's hurt us at the macro level because a lot of people who don't have paid sick leave just went to work anyway, even though they were sick. So that increased the incidence and prevalence of the disease. Um, other policies, uh, you know, over the years, the United States has really fostered a system where um, the big corporations uh, have a larger uh, market share. So the small businesses have been kind of squeezed out. And these uh, larger companies um, really like hold all the cards in terms of the decision making. Are they going to give benefits like retirement and healthcare and paid sick leave? And then you've got the little business owner, the mom and pop shop that is trying to compete with the, you know, that type of economy of scale and they can't do it. Um, so, you know, we have this tension in the United States where the big corporations have kind of taken over and I think it's exacerbated uh, the conditions for, for lower and middle scale people. So I think supporting um, small business through, you know, what consumers can do and through government policies is, is really important because those small business owners are also um, struggling in many instances. 
dividend and stock buybacks should have been banned, I think, through um, during this, this time. Um, banks should uh, be mandated to suspend their capital distributions and focus on lending money to people and businesses who really need it. Um, you know, I don't like paying taxes as much as anyone. I've lived in England. I've lived in Canada. I know the taxation rates are higher there, but, you know, something in the middle here where, you know, I think we have to be a little bit more realistic about the investments Americans need to make in order to ameliorate some of these societal maladies that I'm talking about that stem from income inequality. Taxes have to be raised for higher income groups, especially the 1%. Tax loopholes need to be closed. Um, and also, you know, not just for those, uh, you know, wealthy individuals, but also for corporations. The other thing I'll mention, uh, Morton, is that I, I think a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Um, as the deadlines for these federal and state assistance uh, programs expire on December 31st of this year, um, like the eviction moratorium and so forth, or have expired, um, you know, it's already passed, like the $600 a week. Um, you know, for the additional unemployment. We know, economists talk about the fact that we're setting ourselves up for a terrible, atrocious 2021. Why not use this crisis and the need for fiscal stimulus to do something like a New Deal 2.0? Uh, things like infrastructure, yes, it puts people to work, but how about a national training campaign? Mm -hmm. You know, this is like a, a long-term stimulant to the economy um, that yields economic benefits long after a recession or depression um, because people get to hold on to what they've learned. We have a skills gap in the United States that you know, has been growing for honestly decades, mostly because of technological change, automation, robotics, and so forth. And we have companies even now that are saying, I can't find people with the skills that, that I need for my type of um, business. So why don't we subsidize uh, training programs for displaced workers for the jobs of today? A lot of them have livable wages. Uh, and like I said, long after a recession, that's going to be a stimulant to the economy because uh, <laughs> they're going to be consumers, active consumers in society, and businesses are going to be able to expand. Um, you know, not to mention you're not paying as much unemployment insurance and Medicaid and food stamps and so forth. So why not pursue something that is truly an investment and helps, you know, everyone in, in the economic chain? And this is politically neutral. Yeah. Nobody really argues with putting people to work. Uh, and I have other ideas too, like, uh, you know, investing in green technologies. Uh, you know, I've I take pride in being an American and in our ability to innovate. Uh, and, you know, even if you're a climate change, you know, uh, skeptic, the truth is it can generate a lot of jobs. Uh, and why not, why not invest in that and be a world leader in that? Uh, that's another massive uh, infrastructure uh, investment that the government could, uh, could uh, undertake. That sounds really good. I was hoping that we could uh, end on a positive note. And it <laughs> seems like uh, that the crisis is a terrible thing to waste is to me also a positive note. So, Tatjana, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your insights here. Uh, I certainly have learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And I hope to host you soon again. Thank you so much, Martin. A pleasure to talk to you.